The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I love the idea of a free market solving a particular problem that we have in our economy. And there's no bigger problem than climate change. And in particular, how we are emitting way too many carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, methane and other climate emissions than we should right now and in the future and per capita. And if we don't reduce our emissions quickly enough, it's going to cost us billions. So this is something that a market could solve if the market was structured correctly. And we're often told that the way to solve our climate change issue is just to let the emissions trading scheme rip. Just a quick refresher on how the ETS works or was supposed to work. It was designed to say there is a set amount of emissions that we have. And every year, that set amount is going to decline by government decree and hopefully in line with our zero carbon targets and the targets we've committed to as a country, as advised by the Climate Commission. Now, the emissions trading scheme was quite innovative when it was set up a long time ago. We were one of the first, if not the first, country to have an emissions trading scheme. It was set up in the dying days of the Helen Clark government and on the face of it looked quite comprehensive and useful. But of course, a market isn't just a market operating completely freely away from any government or rule of law or sense of order or rules. Just about every market has those. And the best markets are the ones where there are rules everyone accepts, they are transparently available, there is a transparent market, and people feel that the market is not only fair, but functional and believable in the long run. And on the face of it, we should have an emissions trading scheme that is functional and believable and actually applies a price to solve a problem. If you artificially restrict the number of things that you can possibly produce and consume, and in theory, a government can do this, particularly when it has an act of parliament that says it's supposed to reduce its emissions to a certain level, and that's now being measured by a certain time, we should be able to do that with an emissions trading scheme. And there are some people at the New Zealand Initiative, for example, who say just let the price of carbon credits rise till the pips squeak. And eventually we'll learn through the price to stop producing quite so many climate emissions. Now that would make sense if all the emitters were actually in the scheme and all their emissions were in the scheme. So one of the great complaints about the emissions trading scheme is of course that agriculture is not in the scheme and there are all sorts of exemptions that were set up at least initially for those industries that are seen to be 
competing internationally. So for a long time, for example, some of our biggest industrial emitters, steel and aluminium, and of course agriculture, have been excluded or their emissions have been discounted away. And over the years, the rules have changed on a whole bunch of things. When National came in in 2008, for example, it allowed people to buy credits on international markets, often from, frankly, dodgy Eastern European sellers of these credits. Remember, the whole idea of reducing emissions is to reduce the amount of emissions from a particular economy. Now, of course, Eastern Europe has seen its industrial economy wither as communism withered. And so they had an automatically large number of credits to sell. And uh, as we've found, the people who own stuff in Russia didn't necessarily get it fairly or justly. And um, when you buy things off them, you can't be sure of what you get. And what so what we eventually did under the emissions trading scheme when National was in power was make it a joke by allowing people to buy these credits. Also along the way, we have allowed people to plant forests and claim credits for those because in theory, they suck up uh, carbon and become a carbon sink, as long as, of course, you don't cut down the forest at any point. And so what we've seen over the years is that the emissions trading scheme has been used and frankly abused and changed over the years. And in the last three or four years, it started to become slightly useful. The various exemptions and reductions and exclusions were whittled away a little bit and the price started to rise. I always love looking at an issue just through the price. What's happening with the price? Is the price going up? Is the price going down? And we could see that the price of emissions was rising. It got up nearly up to $100 a tonne last year. And once you get over $100 a tonne, it really starts to have an impact. And it was scheduled to go higher still. That's the whole point about pressing down on those emissions and ensuring that we actually get somewhere near our targets and avoid some of these nasty liabilities that are coming down the track at us. However, when the pressure went on last year, as the government was dealing with a cost of living crisis and an inflation problem, particularly with petrol, the government lost its nerve. And right before Christmas, when frankly not too many people were watching, the government chose to ignore the advice of the Climate Commission about how many credits should be allowed into the market to keep the price from rising too much. It's a slightly complicated story, but I hope in this week's When the Facts Change, we can show you, through the analogy of a packet of chocolate biscuits, what has just gone on with the emissions trading scheme, how the government's policy bonfire has just blown the damn thing up. We talk to Christina Hood, who is an expert in climate change policy, was the head of the International Energy Agency's Climate Change Unit, and understands not just the science and the economics of it, but some of the political pressures involved, and why the unintended consequences of the Cabinet's decision, potentially poorly advised at the end of last year, was to destroy confidence in that market to the point where last week it died. 
This is the story on when the facts change about when a market that could help solve a problem was allowed to wither and tinkered with and accidentally on purpose blown up. I'm Bernard Hickey on When the Facts Change. Well, welcome to Christina Hood to When the Facts Change. Great to see you, Christina. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm curious about the emissions trading scheme and whether a beautiful market could help solve our emissions reduction challenge because there's a, a part of me that grew up as a young uh, naive economist uh, believing in the power of markets and believing that governments should be cleared away to let the markets reign, that the invisible hand of the market was a beautiful thing that shouldn't be messed with. And from a distance, the emissions trading scheme and the idea of creating a emissions credit, carbon reduction emissions credit to trade and to set a limit and to have people effectively find the cheapest way to reduce the emissions seems a very tempting idea in theory. Uh, and we were one of the first uh, as, to introduce an emissions trading scheme in the world of climate change a long time ago now. It's been through various iterations in governments and been improved and uh, uh, worsened uh, over the years. And uh, there's still a few people uh, who argue, you know, all the stuff about emissions reduction and ute taxes and emissions standards and cash for clunkers and all of that stuff is just distraction. You need to just set up the market and let it rip, which suggests that, um, you know, you have a set number of emissions credits to get us to carbon zero by 2050 and a price will be set and it could be ugly, but who cares? The market's always right. Um, get out of the way, let the market rip. So, Christina, you, you did a really interesting piece. As a, uh, a person who uh, was the former head of the IEA's climate change unit and uh, you work in energy policy and thinking about carbon carbon markets at Compass Climate, you have some some views on the emissions trading scheme that we have in New Zealand at the moment, and um, you put out a really good piece which I'll link to in the show notes on LinkedIn. Five things wrong with the New Zealand emissions trading scheme, and I'd I'd love to ask you what's the first thing that's wrong? Yeah. Well, before we get into what's wrong with it, let me just start with, um, you know, there are some things that are right with it. I think the mm. price does play a really important role as part of the policy mix. So while there are those who are saying it's the only answer, there are those who are saying, you know, chuck it out and forget about it. And I don't think either of those positions are right. I think that... Um, price really matters and it particularly matters for um, the business community who make those kind of price-based decisions. But um, but that said, it's a, it's a really unique kind of a market because it's a market that only exists because of political decisions and, and because of regulation. So we regulate the amount of emissions and that's the thing that creates this market. So the whole thing hinges on governments taking decisions to limit carbon and governments sticking with those decisions. And so there isn't 
kind of the fundamentals of supply and demand in the same way that there would be in other markets. It's not, you know, how many tons of wheat have been produced this year and how many bread makers need to buy it. Um, you know, it's like, yes, there are some fundamentals around how much are we emitting, what are the opportunities for abatement, but really there's this other, this third key piece, which is where are gonna, government's going to set the limit and how staunch are they going to be in protecting those limits. So that's the first piece, is that this market is only as good as politicians' willingness to to kind of stand behind it. Because when I hear the phrase emissions trading scheme, and I know that we have a, uh, a need to reduce our emissions and we know what those emissions are, or we know we, how we need to get there, and we know what produces emissions, and also, in theory, what um, uh, sucks up emissions. And I've heard about the emissions trading scheme and all of these pine forest owners um, making a lot of money, um, essentially turning sheep and beef farms into pine forests and getting a whole bunch of money from the emissions trading scheme. And I think, oh, that's great. What's what's wrong with that? But as I understand it, there are quite a few sectors that aren't involved in it that have been given effectively a subsidy or a discount or a free pass. Uh, and then, of course, we have this issue of the pine forests, which I think it's worth exploring a bit more about, you know, how effective that actually is in the long run to getting us towards carbon zero. Yeah, so the New Zealand ETS, uh, and this is, I guess, the other thing about a market, is that a market's quite good at delivering kind of what you tell it to deliver. And so the New Zealand ETS was set up to do a particular thing, which was to, it was set up in the era of the Kyoto Protocol to deliver New Zealand's international targets based on trading off emission reductions and forestry planting and try and do that cheaply. That was what it was designed to do. And those were targets that came in. The first one was a five-year block of time. And the whole kind of architecture of the system is set up in that way. Um, we are now in a different era and we have, I would say, a different problem definition, which is how do we actually make a transition to a decarbonised um, energy system and, uh, you know, low emissions agriculture and how do we build up a, you know, a forestry um, bioeconomy as well as uh, restoring, you know, our native forest. Um, so there's a, this kind of transition that needs to happen and the ETS was not set up to do that and it, it kind of shows in in the design and the way that it works and it's, it's kind of the first of my five things that I mentioned in this piece I wrote. Of course, there are far more than five, but these were just five that are on my mind right now. Um, because emitters in the ETS can trade off making reductions in their emissions against buying units from forestry sequestration, it means that they don't have to reduce their emissions as much as you might think. Um, so I, having come from the IEA, um, I look to the IEA's 1.5 scenario as a bit of a benchmark. And in that scenario for 1.5 consistency, all CO2 emissions from the energy sector, so that's energy, transport, industry, go to net zero in 2050, but their net zero is not using forests to offset any residual. The actual emissions reduce by about 90, 95%, and then the tiny residual that's left is taken out by permanent removals that are stored. So this is direct air capture, 
you know, carbon capture and storage and these types of things where if you are still emitting, then you actually have to take it back out of the atmosphere and store it permanently. And that's what they think a 1.5 consistent transition looks like. And a lot of other governments are taking that seriously. For example, the UK, when it is thinking about the shadow carbon prices that it uses to assess policy, they look at those kinds of scenarios that actually require actual emissions in energy transport and industry to get to near zero. And so what does a price path look like for that? And so in their policy assessment tools, they're actually using 250 pounds per tonne carbon price now in 2023, rising to 380 pounds per tonne in 2050, because those are the kinds of prices you would need to actually drive that transition. Now, that's not to say that those are the prices that are going to appear in anyone's emissions trading system, but it's just to say that if you are talking about a real transition to real zero, it's a different, just a completely different nature of thing than than what we've been considering here in New Zealand, where the, the way that the problem has been framed has always been, oh, we can go a bit slower in terms of reducing our emissions because we've got all this forestry. And it makes it kind of easy for us, to, easy and cheap for us to balance the books. And that has a whole swathe of knock-on consequences for all kinds of things, including things like considering Onslow. So I can, you know, that's a, a long aside that we could talk about. So just firstly on the forestry thing, it sounds to me like if we're really serious about getting to 1.5 and seems a big chunk of the rest of the world is too, uh, then we need to rethink how we do forestry. What what would be different if we were doing it right? I think that you have to support forestry in a different way. So the carbon that forestry removes from the atmosphere is a genuine benefit, even if it's not stored permanently. It is something that should be rewarded. But you cannot trade that off against the need to make actual reductions in energy transport and industry. So you need to to kind of institute a divorce in the ETS between those two pieces. So the foresters still get paid, but the emitters can't use that, um, that they have to actually make reductions. So that's hard because it's, you know, involves a lot of vested interests and um, it's particularly hard in forestry because it's such long timescales that are involved between planting the trees and when they mature and you're talking about the need for permanent maintenance and management of those forests. So there's a lot to work through. Uh, but I would, I think the solution is to treat forestry essentially outside the ETS to have a, a cap that just deals with the gross emissions from those sectors. And my understanding is that um, there has been some discussion about this and the Climate Change Commission is is also coming to the view that uh, forests can't be used permanently to um, solve our issues, but that the government was lobbied very heavily by various interests who own forests or would like to plant a bunch of forests and in the end decided to stick with the status quo. Am I right in that description? There are a number of pieces of work, I think, that are going on behind the scenes. So there was one decision around the permanent forest mechanism in the ETS, where yes, the government had proposed that that might only apply to indigenous forestry, and then they've backtracked. But there's supposedly other work going on on the more general question of should forestry be traded off against emission reductions at all? 
but that uh, has yet to see the light of day and we'll see. Given the government's current um, approach to clearing decks, it may well um, stay under the covers for quite, for quite some time. Uh, I'm curious too about, and I hadn't realised this and maybe I hadn't been paying close enough attention, but there are a whole bunch of big industrial emitters who get free allocations in the emissions trading scheme. Can you talk a bit about that and uh, how you could clean that up to make it more effective? Yep. So when the ETS first came in in 2008, the, the rationale was that New Zealand was an early mover and our big emitters who trade internationally are competing with companies offshore who don't face the same kinds of policy constraints. And so there needed to be some sort of a transitional protection for those companies. And in the 2008 version of the ETS that was put through in the very dying days of the Clark government, there was free allocation and it was going to phase out completely by 2030. That was uh, completely changed in 2009 with the change of government. They changed the approach and there was still going to be a phase out, but a much slower one and they changed the nature of the allocations and they introduced a regime where if you are a little bit carbon intensive you get 60% of your emissions covered and if you are very carbon intensive you get 90% of your emissions covered and there are numerical tests for determining who's in those categories. The phase out was put on hold with the GFC and the aftermath and has kind of gone nowhere for a long time and it's only just resumed and it's now phasing out at 1% per annum until 2030 and then 2% per annum after that for the next decade. And, it, and it's completely incoherent with our 2050 net zero target because under those phase out rates you're still giving out free units well after 2050. It's So you've got zero emissions, net emissions in the economy, but somehow we are still subsidising large industrials. To, to be slightly um, rude about it, which we can do on a podcast, how, how come the Climate Commission hasn't called bullshit on this or someone who actually is focused on it? Or maybe they have and nobody noticed. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, the Commission didn't talk a lot about industrial transition in its last round of policy advice. But they've got a next round coming up in April that they're going to release, and that relates to policy advice for the second budget period, 2026 to 30, and that's really going to be a critical time frame for thinking through this issue. So I hope that they will confront it a little bit there and ask the question, okay, we are. it is now time to move from that regime of the past where you could, you, you know, you could argue that we were protecting the early movers against international competition into a world where, well, actually, no, everyone is moving now, but countries are taking different policy approaches. And some countries are using massive subsidies and tax rebates. Other countries are using explicit carbon pricing like us. And so in this sort of mishmash, where does that leave international competitiveness and how do you deal with it? And how do you help companies to get to zero emissions technologies rather than paying to protect the status quo, which is what our current system does. And that's a long discussion and it's going to be a hard discussion, but uh, we need a place to air that and we need to sort it out over the next few years because we really are moving into this new 
new phase, I guess. So which are the which are the companies or the industries who benefit the most from these uh, free allocations and who also, in some cases, have a bunch of a stockpile of surplus units which they can use up. So who are we talking about here? What sort of industries, companies? So I don't know who individually holds surplus. That's, you know, I don't think that's disclosed anywhere. The, there's definitely aggregate numbers that are published. Uh, the government has recently come to the conclusion that the free allocation is not just covering their emissions, it's actually been over-allocating. So a number of sectors have been getting more than units equivalent to more than 100% of their emissions. And they currently have a bill that's with Select Committee to claw some of that back. However, there is a major, major fishhook in that bill that actually opens this free allocation process to more companies as time goes on, which I don't I hope was not the intention, but uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll work that th- that one through with the select committee. But at the moment, um, it's uh, potentially quite a backward step. Uh, that the companies that get high levels of free allocation are, are the ones that you would expect the high emissions company, high emissions industries like steel, cement, um, aluminium, those kinds of big emitters, and then. In that kind of medium protection category, there's a lot of uh, wood processing and those kinds of things that, because it's it's based on not just your own emissions but also your electricity use. There's deemed to be exposure to the carbon price via the effect on electricity prices, so they get compensation for that as well. So um, that's maybe an area you could address to improve the ETS and. Um, uh, when you look also at how the ETS was created and what's happened since then with the uh, move to the nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement and uh, and how the governments um, and the country's emissions have gone since the thing was created back in 2008, I think, um, how would it adapt and adjust in the best way to, you know, help drive the right type of behaviour that gets us to the number, not just the Paris number, but the the um, the number we actually need to get to, to get to 1.5, which on the face of it, and from my limited reading of um, various official reports, would mean we have to do a lot more emissions reduction in the next seven or eight years that we have to front load the hard work, if you like, rather than back load it, which is how um, politicians and voters <laughs> prefer to deal with the problem so far. So our Paris Agreement target, our nationally determined contribution, as they call it, um, is significantly more ambitious than the domestic budgets that are in our domestic law. It's about about an extra 100 million tonnes of reductions beyond what is in those domestic budgets. I have been, you know, as vocal as anyone about the government needing to front up about what it, what is the plan here? You know, what what is it that we're going to do about this? Uh, there are options. So the Paris Agreement allows for international cooperation, but it's not, absolutely not, you know, go to Joe's dodgy credit shop and buy up uh, because those won't count 
towards an NDC. The Paris Agreement is about cooperation between governments. It's government-to-government cooperation for the achievement of NDCs. So you would need an agreement with the other government that they will count whatever you're counting. And if you're going to count it, they have to deduct it. So there is a, you know, there is some sort of a constraint around around it from that. And there's going to be a lot, a huge amount of scrutiny on anything that New Zealand bought from through that kind of international cooperation. So that's one option. Uh, in terms of how that affects the ETS, uh, it may or may not. So the government could just do that as a government purchase program and not involve the ETS at all, or it could devolve some of those obligations to ETS emitters and say, okay, we're going to auction less domestically, but give you the right to go and buy international units to cover the shortfall, and then those would, would count. So that could be one way that the ETS is adjusted. The other thing, of course, that the government could do is to do more domestically. And we, you know, everyone uh, thinks that more could be done domestically, more should be done domestically. I'm absolutely in that camp. If you are going to aim to do more domestically, you have to lower the caps on the ETS because the ETS cap is the level of domestic emissions that you are aiming for. And right now, those ETS caps are set in line with the budgets. But if you want to overachieve the budgets, that is too high. You've got to drop it. So, How the, much do you think would have to be dropped? Well, it depends how much you target, like what extra domestic reductions you think you can get in sectors that are covered by the ETS. That's the question. And, you know, if you look at the commissions, the commission's done different scenarios so they have the, the sort of middle-of-the-road scenario, the demonstration path is what was used to set the budgets, but they have a more ambitious one called the tailwind scenario. And in that, uh, the extra reductions in sectors covered by the ETS aren't actually that massive. There were a lot of extra reductions potentially in agriculture, but only if some of the t- new technologies come on. So you could make some extra reductions, but it might be, I don't know what, an extra 10 or 20 million tonnes in ETS sectors. So it's taking a good bite out of that 100 million tonnes, but you're certainly not going to get that in ETS sectors. I mean, remember that the whole whole emissions covered by, the gross emissions covered by the ETS is something on the order of, I think it's about 30 million tonnes per annum. So you know, how much can we really reduce that in a very, very short space of time, even if you reduced it by 5 or 10 million tonnes a year, then it's still not going to add up to enough. Wing the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. 
Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. I'm just curious too about this idea of uh, New Zealand meeting its Paris Agreement um, obligations by buying or paying for credits overseas. There is a big uh, carbon diplomacy um, program apparently uh, in the works, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these things that are going to be spent. And I must say it was one of the sort of shocks in hearing about the um, the plan that James Shaw was going to take with him to Glasgow, that actually the real work was going to be done by our diplomats buying credits that don't exist yet of other people rather than actually uh, reducing the amount of emissions from our vehicles and our farms. Um, how real, how realistic is it for us to, st- to talk about um, getting these credits that people believe in and that are legitimate from overseas, the Pacific, Southeast Asia, uh, is is this is this a, a clever is this a clever and a real way of solving our problem, or are we kidding ourselves? So I'll start with the the kind of higher level. Why would we do this? Response before getting into the details of how you would do it. So when New Zealand first put forward an NDC back in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed, the the expected amount of international purchase was actually higher than it is now. So we have actually, through um, domestic action and changes in the baseline and, you know, some of it's business as usual change that we didn't expect. But, you know, anyway, through, through changes since 2015, we're actually in a position now where that 100 million tonne shortfall is actually lower than I thought I mean I, can't, I don't have the numbers in my head but I think it's it, it is significantly lower than what it was at the time and in the meantime we've also strengthened the target so it's not like this is some uh, after the fact oh my god we've found there's a shortfall it was always in the thinking it was always part of what was signed up to uh, so there is no surprise here the 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 rationale for it i mean i know that you know people would some people would talk about economic efficiency and making reductions with our cheapest and that sort of thing i guess i don't necessarily see it in that way i actually see it so you'll often hear people say that 
New Zealand's emissions are small and we are completely beholden on what happens in countries like China and India and so on. And it's, it's the upshot I take, that it is true that our emissions are small and it is true that China and India's and Indonesia's emissions and the US's emissions are very large and they have to reduce by a lot. But the lesson I take from that is not that our emissions domestically don't matter. Of course they do, like any countries. But I also take the message from that that we need to do whatever we can to influence those other countries to take serious action. And so what are our levers to do that? One is to to try and have negotiations where you kind of put them over a barrel and say, oh, you have to do this, but, you know, well, that's only going to be successful up to a point with self-determined um, targets. Another one is that we can um, show that we are serious and therefore that they should be serious. It's going to be very, very hard to get developing countries to follow through with the commitments that they have made. And they have made serious commitments. Most countries now have net zero targets. But it's going to be very hard to argue that they should follow through with that if countries like New Zealand start to backtrack on the commitments that we have made. And then the third thing is that we can actually put money on the table and we can actually go and help them get started. So through our international cooperation to meet our NDC, we could go to a country like India and help them to transition their uh, energy system and get off coal faster than they would have otherwise. And that actually locks in change in some of those key countries and accelerates the whole global effort. So there is a there are, there are a set of reasons why it, it's a useful tool, and it's not just a it's not it's not a we have failed and therefore we have to pay a penalty price or something. It's much it's got a much more strategic value than that. But you asked about. Is it real? Like, can you actually go and buy these things? What's going to happen? Well, it is um, it is a market that doesn't exist yet. Like I said before, the dodgy carbon credits that people like to complain about are a different thing. The Paris Agreement market is just being built now. If governments decide to go out and build it and build these cooperations, they will happen. If governments sit on their hands and do nothing, it won't. And so it really is up to the New Zealand government to build these relationships with other countries. The only government that's got units signed up so far is Switzerland, and they've had, I think, already a five or six year program of working with other countries to put things in place, and it is now starting to bear fruit. So New Zealand, you know, given that we are now already more than two years into the 10-year NDC period, had better, better get moving on this. Paul Finger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and also the, the other thing I'm curious about is whether the uh, idea of a emissions trading scheme system that connects up emissions trading schemes in one country with various other countries uh, is a realistic prospect. It sounds like the holy grail of uh, climate change economics, but um, is it is it a real thing? Yeah, so that's an actually a, a second and equally legitimate option for New Zealand towards its NDC is that we could find another, probably a developed country that's got an emissions trading system and we could just each set our targets at the NDC equivalent level and allow the companies to trade and that would be a way of, of doing it as well and you would end up with probably New Zealand companies making purchases and 
we count that towards our NDC. There's not that many um, compatible ETSs out there because, and linking is hard because of technical reasons mostly and political reasons as well. So the technical reasons that relate to things like, you know, how you, what's your process for setting your caps? How do you protect your industry with free allocation? Do you have price uh, thresholds that kind of limit the prices and so on? So you can imagine that it's hard to technically link up systems that are different in some of those ways. And then there are big political issues as well, because if you're a small country linking to a bigger one, then essentially the larger market is going to determine the price. And so New Zealand would lose the ability to control the carbon price if we if we fully linked to an international system. Now, you know, maybe that's a good thing, but, you know, maybe it's not. So there's, but there are, you know, there's sort of halfway houses as well where you could potentially have some trade of units without having full linking. And that's that's something that they could look into. Now, one of the big changes in the last couple of years that maybe hasn't um, been noticed as much broadly in New Zealand is the Inflation Reduction Act in the last year or so in the United States, which is a curious little accident of the political economy in the world's largest economy in which after the failure of an initial Green New Deal collection of subsidies for investment in renewable energy, Joe Biden came back to it and it changed its name to the Inflation Reduction Act and managed to push through um, eventually a third of a trillion dollars worth of subsidies. Um, no doubt there's some very large companies licking their lips at the prospect of getting some very large chunks of, of very large checks, and they still do checks in America. And uh, that has changed the game, though, because the Europeans, who are all very holier than thou on, on no government helping a company get ahead or, or countries playing each other off against each other with subsidies, are now going, well, you can't ignore the third of a trillion dollars, and maybe we should play this game too. Should New Zealand be looking at doing some sort of, you know, Inflation Reduction Act now that, um, you know, everyone's dropped their purity um, uh, thoughts and now it's just, well, not quite every government for themselves, but um, if you're going to be serious about it, you know, really get in there and start subsidising people. The, the EU does this as well to an extent, so there's no, you know, particular purity over there. They have a thing called the Innovation Fund, which is a big pot of money which is funded out of the EU ETS. So there's, there is a recognition that there's some combination of price and regulation and government investment that work well together to help drive the transition. And it comes back a little bit to the, you know, your initial premise of can you just let the market rip? And it's like, well, no, you know, the kind of the understanding that's grown internationally among governments in particular that are using price as part of the toolbox is that it's not the complete answer, that there are places in the system where government investment really, really matters. One of those is obviously infrastructure. So, you know, what is the what do our transport systems need to look like in a world where we are functioning without fossil fuels? How do we build that? That's not something that a carbon price on its own is likely to drive. And the other, another key piece is is in the innovation system. So how quickly do we need some of these technologies to come on stream? 
and does that need to be really pushed and accelerated? And that's where things like the um, the US policy are targeting. Is it, um, but to some extent, the US policy is also making up for the fact that they don't have a carbon price. So some of the subsidy is just well, you know, if we were properly, if they were properly pricing carbon, then some of these things might be cost effective. So it's it's an interesting one to try and unpack because there's pieces that you would say, okay, that's helping innovation. That's a you know absolutely legitimate thing to do. There are others where having them having a carbon price would help, but they politically can't have a carbon price. It's just not feasible in their political system. So they need to overcome that price differential in some other way. And this is the way that they are able to do it. So it's definitely second best or third best, but uh, in their political space, it's actually first best because it's the only one that they can do. You know, it's like, it's all very well to talk about perfect solutions, but if they can't be implemented, then they are not perfect. And, and just finally, um, with the ETS and the idea that a, a price can solve a lot of issues, sometimes it's worth looking at what the price of our current uh, carbon credits on the ETS are, because last year, for example, there was quite a bit of um, hope develop as the carbon price rose in the ETS, and you know we started to get closer to that hundred dollars a ton level, and it looked like maybe this is sending some good signals here. And then just before Christmas, the government made some changes here and there, arguing that um, it it had to cut motorists and hardworking Kiwi families who are dealing with a cost of living crisis some slack by tweaking the ETS or blocking changes that would have meant basically higher petrol prices. And uh, we've seen, for example, the uh, the methanol aspect of the um, uh, ETS uh, put on hold. And my understanding is um, a bunch of uh, changes were made that effectively help to reduce the carbon price uh, um, to the point where on March the 15th uh, uh, in the uh, official auction, um, there's been a bit of a crisis of confidence. Can you tell us a bit a bit more about what's happening in, the, in the, car, the emissions trading scheme market at the moment? Yeah, so the December decision was a pretty interesting one. So the Climate Change Commission had recommended uh, certain settings for the ETS, and they had the the key one was that there's this thing called the cost containment reserve, which is some extra units that the market can access in in a situation where prices spike really high. And the commission had said, uh, put that well out of the way because this shouldn't be a normal part of the functioning of the market. It's like you know the packet of chocolate biscuits. If they're sitting on the kitchen bench, you help yourself to them. Let's shut them up in a box in the top of the pantry, we out of sight, you know, was the commission's Ah, but I'll always find the chocolate biscuits. <laughs> um, or have your yeah partner hide them where you don't know where they are or something. <laughs> but, um, and uh, officials uh, in their regulatory impact analysis agreed with that and actually Minister Shaw recommended that to Cabinet and Cabinet disagreed. Uh, so Cabinet decided instead to set that price much lower and so that the market would have ready access to a much, much larger volume of units. So 
I don't think they understood what they were doing, to be honest, because when you go and look at the cabinet paper, the discussion was all about price. The discussion was all about, oh, no, well, what might the impact on price be if prices went high or prices were low and how do we deal with that and what are the social impacts and so on. The discussion never circled back to the actual key question for meeting the targets, which is, okay, but if you try and lower the price by releasing more units into the market, every unit that you release allows an extra tonne of emissions. And are you then allowing a level of emissions which is no longer consistent with the targets? And the cabinet paper and the discussion never circled back to consider that. So they have effective, what they've effectively done is allowed the market ready access to an extra 42.5 million tonnes of units compared to what the Commission recommended. Blinking heck, that's a truckload of chocolate biscuits. Yeah, it is. By, by setting the threshold so low that the market could easily reach it, they know that, yeah, those biscuits are just there if they want them. That volume is, in my view, inconsistent with meeting the budgets, and I don't think, you know, there is a test in the law that says you're supposed to align it with the budgets. I don't think it is aligned with the budgets. Uh, and so the reaction from the market has been really interesting. So if you make a few extra units available, the market might say, oh, yeah, okay, that's good. You know, we'll, that might moderate the price a little. But what's happened here is that they've turned on the fire hose and the market is sort of sort of staring open-mouthed and saying, well, yeah, but that's more units than is consistent with these targets. You know, what the hell? And it has undermined confidence that the government is actually committed to meeting these targets because they're releasing or they're allowing the market access to so many units. And so that has actually crashed the price in the market. So the, the market price has fallen from over $80 to around $65 lately in trading. And that just reflects the expectations of participants of where the price is going to be in the future. And um, so in the, the auction on the 15th of March, the, uh, the bids that were put in did not meet the, there's a confidential reserve price, which is based on something to do with how the market's been trading over the last period that, that you know, Clearly, it's confidential. We don't know how they set it. But um, that price was not met and the auction failed and no units were released. So, Is that an unusual thing for an auction like that to fail? Well, it's the first one that has failed. So in the past, not only have they succeeded, but the, all of these extra units from the cost containment reserve have been released in the last two years. So it's a complete flip around and, uh, yeah, pretty interesting. So going from a perception last year, a perception that prices were going to climb quickly, that constraints were going to bind, that units were valuable, to a perception this year of uh, we don't know where things are headed, is it worth buying these things? So that one decision from Cabinet in December has had a really, really huge impact on confidence in the market. And so now we have a, um, a carbon price in uh openly traded markets down towards $60 a, a tonne, whereas in other markets overseas, as you mentioned, and for other people who are thinking about future carbon prices, it's more like hundreds of dollars a tonne. Yeah, well, the, the, the EU price is around €100 Euros right now. So you're getting up towards $180 New Zealand a, a tonne. And um, that just says that 
essentially the people who are serious about uh, trading uh, credits, thinking about our climate policy, have looked at what the government's done in the last two or three months and gone, you know what, I don't think these guys are serious. Is that, am, I, am I right with that broad description? Well, I, I mean, I don't know exactly what's in the heads of the people who are the, the traders in the market, but that to me seems to be a plausible explanation. Uh, like I said at the very beginning, this is a market that only exists because of political decisions and a regulatory constraint. So the confidence in price and in the future price path is only as good as participants' confidence that current and future governments are going to stick by it and keep it tight and make it tough. And if they start to doubt that, then the, then it starts to unravel. And just finally, um, when you wake up in the middle of the night uh, and you think about the world and what's going on, knowing what you know about how the political economy of emissions reduction works in New Zealand at least and what's happening around the world and then we see things like Cyclone Gabrielle and um, any number of weather events and the effects of climate change. How do you um, go back to sleep and get up in the morning? <laughs> I think it helps to to just remember the kind of the IPCC's advice, which is that every ton matters. It's like I, you know, I don't know how successful we're going to be at limiting temperatures to below 2 or to 1.5 or wherever, um, we are almost certainly going to commit future generations to trying to remove masses of carbon from the atmosphere to try and bring the climate back into a reasonable realm. Everything that we can do now makes that task less difficult for them. So, you know, exactly where we end up, I don't know, but I do know that everything that we can do now matters and helps. And so you just keep... You just keep moving and you just keep trying to do what you can do. Christina Hood, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Good to talk to you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.